Good afternoon. If I could ask you to take your seats, welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Christopher Preble. I'm the Director of Foreign Policy Studies here. Uh, it's great to see uh, so many turn out today, and uh, we have a terrific panel up here. Obviously very crowded out there, but we're also a little crowded up here. Uh, we have a lot of uh, uh, points of view to, to put forward today, and I want to leave a lot of time as well for questions from the audience. Before I do, I want to uh, put a special thanks out to our conference department. They always do a really terrific job making these events work, and you have no idea how busy they are this week, and they have done, and you have no idea because they have pulled off yet another event uh, uh, seamlessly, and I'm very appreciative of that. Uh, for those of you here in the auditorium, please uh, silence your phones and other noise-making devices uh, out of courtesy to the other attendees. Um, it's really not very surprising that we have such a terrific turnout today, given uh, the news uh, that is just dominating, and particularly from a foreign policy perspective. It's been nearly eight years since the fall of the Taliban regime. Afghanistan still struggles under the most brutal conditions, uh, corrupt and ineffective state institutions, uh, thousands of miles of unguarded borders, pervasive illiteracy and poverty. Uh, dysfunctional alliance, I think, in many respects, attempting to provide security for the country and not uh, having tremendous success, it raises uh, larger questions beyond just Afghanistan per se. Can nation building succeed in the midst of a bloody insurgency? Uh, it, can it succeed in the environment uh, that is, as Afghanistan, so inhospitable to such efforts? Uh, what constitutes success? How do we define it? And what price should we be willing to pay to achieve it? Um, do, uh, does the United States have a compelling strategic rationale for remaining in Afghanistan? Uh, these are some of the questions that our panelists will uh, consider today. I'm going to introduce all of them in the, uh, right now in the order in which they'll speak. Uh, the first speaker today is my colleague and friend, Malou Innocent. She's a foreign policy analyst here at Cato. Her primary research interests are U.S. foreign policy towards Pakistan, Afghanistan, and China. She is the co-author with Ted Galen Carpenter, who will also speak today with the new report issued today, Escaping the Graveyard of Empires, a Strategy to Exit Afghanistan. Most of you uh, should have received a copy of this. We have copies enough for everyone in the audience. For those of you watching online, it's also available online for download. Um, Malou has also published widely on Afghanistan. She traveled to Afghanistan last year courtesy of a generous grant from the Ford Foundation. She's published reviews and articles on national security and international affairs in scholarly and policy journals, including Survival, Congressional Quarterly, Harvard International Review, and Armed Forces Journal. Our second speaker today is Celeste Ward. She's a senior defense analyst at the RAND Corporation. Prior to joining RAND, she was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Stability Operations Capabilities in the Office of the Secretary of Defense from August 2007 to January 2009. She joined DOD after two tours in Iraq, first with the Coalition Provisional Authority from November 2003 to June 2004, and later as the political military advisor to General Peter Sorelli. Um, Celeste has also worked as a special assistant to the Council of the State Department uh, as a strategist in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, as a research fellow at the Center for Strategic International Studies, and as a defense analyst at the Congressional Budget Office. Our third speaker today is Robert Naiman. He is a policy director and national coordinator at Just Foreign Policy. 
Uh, Naaman has worked as a policy analyst and researcher at the Center for Economic and Policy Research and Public Citizens Global Trade Watch. He has a master's degree in economics and mathematics from the University of Illinois and has studied and worked in the Middle East. Robert edits the Just Foreign Policy Daily News Summary and writes a blog at Huffington Post. Our fourth speaker today is Patrick Cronin. He's the director of the Institute for National Strategic Studies at the National Defense University. He served more than two years at the London-based International Institute for Strategic Studies. Prior to joining IISS, Patrick was Director of Research and Senior Vice President at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In 2001, uh, Dr. Cronin was confirmed as Assistant Administrator for Policy and Program Coordination at the U.S. Agency for International Development. And from 1998 till 2001, Patrick served as Director of Research at the U.S. Institute of Peace. He's also been a senior analyst at the Center for Naval Analysis. Uh, he was a U.S. Naval Reserve Intelligence Officer and an analyst with the Congressional Research Service and SRI International. And our fifth and final speaker today is my friend and mentor, Ted Galen Carpenter. He's the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. He's the author of eight books on international affairs, including Smart Power, Toward a Prudent Foreign Policy for America, Bad Neighbor Policy, Washington's Feudal War on Drugs in Latin America, and A Search for Enemies, America's Alliances After the Cold War. He's edited another 10 books and has published more than 400 articles in policy studies. He's a frequent guest on television and radio programs around the world. Please join me in welcoming all of our speakers, and first, Malou Innocent. Thank you. Hello, thank you all for coming. Uh, thank you, Chris, for that warm introduction. And thank you, uh, everyone on the dais here, for agreeing to attend. Thank you so much. Um, I think in debates surrounding the war in Afghanistan, a view common among the political and military elite is that if the United States truly committed enough time and resources, possibly hundreds of thousands of troops for another 12 to 14 years, Washington could really turn that country around. General Stanley McChrystal, who commanded Special Operations Forces in Iraq and this summer became the commander of U.S. Uh, military operations in Afghanistan, says he hopes to see an improvement on the ground with a fraction of those forces in as little as 18 to 24 months. However, there is a reason why the war in Afghanistan ranks at or near the bottom of polls tracking issues important to the American public and why most Americans who do have an opinion about the war oppose it and oppose sending more combat troops. It's because Americans understand intuitively that the question about Afghanistan is not about whether it's winnable, but whether it constitutes a vital national security interest. An essential national debate about whether we should really double down in Afghanistan has yet to be taken place. America still does not have a clearly articulated goal. This is why the conventional wisdom surrounding the war in Afghanistan about whether we should rebuild key institutions and create legitimate political systems is not so much misguided as much as it's misplaced. The issue is not about whether we can, but whether we should. This distinction is oftentimes overlooked. The question of what we can do in Afghanistan looks troubling. I have spoken to Western ambassadors, U.S. troops who have returned from Afghanistan, provincial Afghan tribal chiefs, and I am overwhelmed with a feeling that no matter how much we pour into Afghanistan, it shouldn't be measured in years, but in decades, many decades. And right now the policy requires more troops than we can ever send. Add to that the burden of the spiraling financial crisis, and the time and resources required will not be accomplished within costs acceptable to the American public. Only recently has the debate surrounding the war in Afghanistan moved from the can to the should. 
Should we remain in Afghanistan? The answer, when stacked against our own interests and our own objective of dismantling, defeating, and disrupting al-Qaeda, is clearly no. Going after al-Qaeda does not require a long-term, large-scale presence in the region for several reasons. First, we must keep in mind that the regular military is wonderful for killing bad guys with disproportionate firepower, destroying enemy troop formations, or bombing their command centers, but not for finding hidden killers like terrorists. Our greatest successes scored against al-Qaeda have not relied on large numbers of U.S. troops. The scalpel of intelligence sharing and foreign close cooperation with foreign law enforcement officials and agencies has done more to round up suspected terrorists than the sledgehammer of military force. In fact, most of the greatest successes scored against al-Qaeda, such as the snatch-and-grab operations that netted Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Ramzi bin al-Sheib, have not relied on large numbers of U.S. troops. Second, whether we withdraw from Afghanistan or whether we stay, al-Qaeda can twist it into a victory for them and us into weakness. If we withdraw, we appear weak, even though the United States is responsible for almost half of the world's military spending, can project its power to the most inaccessible corners of the globe, and wields one of the planet's largest nuclear arsenals. Still, al-Qaeda can twist withdrawal into weakness. But America also appears weak if we remain there for too long. The military will appear bogged down, the strategy and the mission aimless. And despite our best efforts, military operations will continue to kill Afghan civilians, which will erode support for our presence. In addition, given the ideological nature of terrorism, our, our purpose and our presence will reinforce the revolutionary cause al-Qaeda seeks to promote. And hand jihadists are a potent recruiting tool they will seek to exploit, as we have seen with the proliferation of Pakistani Taliban across the border. In addition, an extraordinarily costly and open-ended military occupation gives Osama bin Laden and his ilk exactly what they want. America's all-volunteer military force pressed to cope with an irregular, protracted war. Policymakers and the public at large should keep in mind that Osama bin Laden's stated objective is to ensnare us into multiple unending wars and to, quote, bleed America to the point of bankruptcy, unquote. Overall, remaining in Afghanistan is more likely to tarnish America's reputation and undermine U.S. security rather than withdrawal. Third, our policy towards Afghanistan is undermining core U.S. security interests in Pakistan. Here at Cato, we have a saying taken from French philosopher uh, Friedrich Bastiat, that which is seen and that which is not seen. Our drone operations have successfully killed a number of high-value targets and may have even seriously degraded al-Qaeda's global capabilities. But our policies are also pushing the powerful jihadist insurgency across the border into Pakistan, carrying with it potentially devastating implications. For lack of a better analogy, the Afghanistan-Pakistan border is like a balloon. Pushing down on one side forces elements to the other. It doesn't eliminate the threat especially when you consider that the border between these two countries is virtually non-existent. And that's also just essentially a line on Western maps and not in the hearts and minds of the militants that are fighting across this border. Last summer, I was fortunate enough to visit Peshawar, the administrative center of the federally administered tribal areas. I spoke with several South Waziri tribesmen about the collateral damage unleashed by U.S. missile strikes. They noted that airstrikes allow militants to define themselves as a force against the injustice of America's occupation next door and against the Pakistani government. As early as 2007, in response to repeated Pakistani army incursions, along with a growing number of U.S. missile strikes, an amalgamation of over two dozen tribal-based guerrilla groups calling themselves the Taliban began to emerge in the Pakistani border areas. 
These guerrillas won control of North and South Waziristan and merged into a single outfit known as Tariqi Taliban Pakistan, TTP. After consolidating control in the tribal areas, these militants eventually came down out of the hills and began spilling into major Pakistani cities, fueling the wave of suicide bombings that we've seen over the past several years. Before 9-11, terrorist attacks in Lahore were completely unheard of. Now they happen with increasing frequency. There's also been an influx of Pashtun militants in Karachi, Pakistan's industrial hub, causing major political and social tensions there. Unfortunately for Pakistanis, because the United States is literally oceans away, it is they, not us, who have borne the brunt of uh, targets against uh, insurgents, by insurgents. It is also why the State Department's 2009 terrorism report, despite finding an overall decline in terrorist attacks worldwide, discovered that attacks within Pakistan have more than quadrupled from 2006 to 2008. Unfortunately, present U.S. policy is pushing militants deeper into Pakistani cities, strengthening the very jihadist source, uh, forces we <coughs> seek to defeat, and pressing this weakened nuclear-armed country in the direction of civil war. There are many other reasons why a large-scale, long-term military presence is counterproductive to our interests, and it's a subject that I've written on extensively. But I want to make sure I leave enough time for Q&A, so I'll just leave you with this. I think perhaps the worst thing we can do is leave the region entirely. It's what we did after nearly a decade of funding the Mujahideen, and we paid for it dearly eight years ago last Friday. But there are also costs remaining in the region, not simply in terms of manpower and resources, but in giving al-Qaeda what it wants, pushing the conflict over into Pakistan, and looking weak by remaining indefinitely, yet possibly accomplishing very little. America should scale down its military presence in the region, continue open relations and intelligence sharing with all countries in the region, deploy special forces for discrete operations against specific targets when feasible, and engage in intensive surveillance as it already does today. Whether al-Qaeda coalesces in Sudan or in Yemen or in Miami, Florida, our policy should not be to redesign a foreign people's way of life or tinker with the importance of their communal identity. As the war in Afghanistan rages on, President Obama should be skeptical of suggestions that the defeat of al-Qaeda depends on a massive troop presence. But I fear that the longer we stay and the more money we spend, the more we'll feel compelled to remain in the region to validate that investment. A similar self-imposed predicament plagued U.S. policymakers during the war in Vietnam. But we draw the wrong lesson from that conflict. Not that America should avoid intervening in another country's disputes, but that America should never give up after having intervened, no matter what the costs. The political discourse has already shifted to whether this has become Obama's Vietnam. I believe that whether it will be or not is entirely his decision. Thank you. There are a few seats down in the front. If people wanted to move down closer, there are some seats down in the front part of the auditorium. Thank you. Good morning. Malou has set quite an example for brevity, so I will try to <laughs> follow it. Um, I just want to thank Chris Preble and Cato for inviting me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I want to emphasize that the views I express here do not represent the RAND Corporation. They're my own. Um, over the last few years, the violence in Afghanistan has come to be dubbed an insurgency and that requires the application of a counterinsurgency strategy. Joe McChrystal recently released his counterinsurgency guidance to the troops, and many members of the administration uh, can be quoted using this terminology, though this was not always the case. However, this is in keeping with the general uh, zeitgeist of population-centric counterinsurgency, or COIN, which has now risen to such prominence in U.S. defense and national security thinking that it now borders on theology. 
Coin has become the overriding theme in discussions about not just present but future wars, a cultural movement in military and defense circles, and indeed a worldview. As uh, Colonel John Gentile at West Point has written, it has become the new American way of war. The problem is that counterinsurgency doctrine and theory impede our ability to accurately apprehend the nature and extent of our predicament in Afghanistan and are serving as an awkward stand-in for a rational strategy. And the existence of a much ballyhooed manual, the Army's Field Manual 3-24, and perceived success employing its precepts in Iraq are, uh, are serving to obscure the real costs of the campaign in Afghanistan and provide a dangerous illusion concerning the limits of American power. Um, just to briefly retrace how we got here, um, counterinsurgency theory began its reemergence, of course, as a result of Iraq. And it was immediate, the term was immediately politicized when the left charged the Bush administration that ins an insurgency had begun in Iraq in 2004, and the administration insisted that it had not, um, though it eventually relented and at least stopped openly resisting the term. But as time went on, the defense community in Washington began unearthing a lot of historical materials, conducting new studies, publishing articles, and holding conferences, and the community began generally occupying itself with the study of insurgencies past and present. And before long, it was an article of faith that our problems were in Iraq were the result of an insurgency and that naturally we should be employing a counterinsurgency strategy. And of course, the concept reached its zenith with two major events, the publication of FM 3-24 at the end of 2006, and of course, the surge in Iraq, which was presided over by General Petraeus, whose signature is on the opening pages of FM 324. The surge, the shorthand used to describe several changes to our approach in Iraq uh, beginning in 2007, is widely reputed to be an example of both an implementation of FM 324 and of sec successful counterinsurgency. But this is a deeply flawed account of history. This forum is about Afghanistan, not Iraq. But it is my view that our perceptions about what happened in Iraq are playing too great a role in our collective thinking about Afghanistan. Iraq was not mostly an insurgency, the surge was not a counterinsurgency or an implementation of FM 324, and the accomplishments of the surge were far more modest than have been described by some. I'll get into this more in questions. Um, but the persistence of the mythology associated with the surge is leading us to an attempt and application of the same techniques in Afghanistan. Um, I, I don't think I need to prove this. The language is the same. Um, if you listen to commentators, they'll usually begin phrases with, as we learned in Iraq. Um, and ev you know, the, even the language of the surge is the same, and, and indeed many of the personalities. So let me just briefly detail some of the problems with coin theory and doctrine in this scenario. Um, I think we can ask a first-order question whether, uh, whether it's useful to devise such typologies of warfare. I'm not arguing for an elimination of doctrine or the practice of identifying generalizable lessons, but we should be constantly attentive to the risk that such groupings obscure more than they illuminate. Conflicts are, to some degree, sui generis. They have their own characters, motive forces, and qualities, and are situated in historical and strategic contexts that are highly relevant to their outcomes. This might be merely an interesting academic debate where it's unexamined assumptions not being applied to a major U.S. national security priority. The dominance of counterinsurgency thinking has also led many analysts to overapply the term to a host of different types of internal conflicts around the world and in history. Interestingly, as Colonel Gentile has further argued, the term is so heavily loaded with historical context, contemporary assumptions, myth, and even nonsense that it has lost its meaning. It's been reduced to a slogan, an incantation. 
In the imprecision of our language, we should not be surprised to find imprecision in our thinking. The proper application of terminology is more than academic. Let me offer two examples of how the misapplication of coin theory could lead one astray. Uh, one of the key precepts of coin theory is that counterinsurgency forces are there, there to support and underwrite the legitimacy of the host government. But what if the host government is part of the problem? Or if they're not, if they're not a government that is in U.S. interest to support? I would submit that Iraq was certainly in the former category. We're also told that counterinsurgency forces require patience, and Malou touched on this in her presentation, and that counterinsurgencies take a long time. And indeed, the supposed lack of American patience or attention span is a familiar lamentation in, among defense intellectuals. But what if the very presence of the counterinsurgency forces is precisely the irritant exacerbating the conflict? Moreover, this seems like a prescription for an interminable presence, since if things do not improve, then perhaps it's just we haven't tried hard enough or been there long enough. Um, the second major problem with population-centric coin theory is that at heart, counterinsurgency really is nation-building. The theory emphasizes the population, meeting its needs, establishing governmental legitimacy, developing economies, and so on. Indeed, some notable coin adherents have even emphasized the potential for the approach to, quote, change entire societies. So for those of you who argue that there is no strategy in Afghanistan, I would submit to you that, in effect, there is. It is implicit in the logic of coin, and it is to transform Afghan society. But because the discussion is often wrapped in the more abstruse language of defense wonkery, the real strategic trade-offs, the exorbitant costs of building a nation in a country with no real history of central governance and that ranks 219th in per capita GDP are glossed over. I would argue that if General McChrystal had released instead his nation-building guidance, we'd be having a very different discussion. Finally, some of the specific aspects of coin theory are intellectually and strategically problematic in themselves. Clear, hold, and build is a much-quoted counterinsurgency dictum. The notion is that our forces should clear an area of the enemy, hold it against the enemy's uh, attempts to take it back, and then build. Um, this sounds good in theory, but it actually withers under a bit of scrutiny. What precisely are we to build? Security forces, sewage treatment plants, electrical lines, and to what point are we to build to? There is, in fact, no end to such an approach because there is no basis on which to measure progress, much less completion. Indeed, some parts of the United States could probably stand a bit of building. Um, second, at the heart of counterinsurgency is the notion that we must win over the population. The theory is that most of the population is unsure whose side they should be on, and we should make sure that they choose us. But this, too, is deeply complicated by reality. It assumes that a foreign force such as ours could ever truly understand, never mind penetrate and manipulate, the opinions and loyalties of an ancient tribal people. The conceit inherent in this notion goes mostly unremarked upon. Third, the population focus associated with counterinsurgency may well lead commanders on the ground to pick the safety of the host population over the safety of Americans, and some coin advocates are explicit about this. We must sacrifice some of our own in order to save them. In light of my criticism above, this seems like a risky proposition and a fact that should be made clear to the American public before asking them to make such sacrifices of their children, husbands, wives, fathers, and mothers. And there was a potential example of this uh, last week in a Marine firefight. Uh, the Pentagon says the story is inaccurate, but a reporter uh, uh, stated that a Marine... The, um, some Marines got into a firefight, called for support, and did not receive it because commanders were worried about civilian casualties. Now, again, the Pentagon says that this is not the case. 
But if were it proved to prove true, it would show the risks of this approach. Um, in conclusion, uh, let me just say that by saying we're waging a counterinsurgency campaign in Afghanistan, we're committing ourselves to a massive project of nation building in a country that one commentator recently described as like walking into the Old Testament. It has become cliche to note the administration has yet to articulate a real strategy in Afghanistan. I would submit that counterinsurgency as an operational concept and set of tactics has been in effect elevated to the status of a strategy. And calling it a counterinsurgency masks layers of material complexity to the outcome, tribal rivalry, ethnic conflict, the underlying struggle between tradition and modernity, and, and doubtless several others. I'm struck every day that we have a vigorous, acrimonious debate going on about health care and whether it's affordable, yet there is very little discussion about the cost of our operations in Afghanistan to say nothing of escalating them. By describing the problem as it is and taking a hard look at our real ends, ways, and means and perhaps taking a different approach, we would not be abandoning Afghanistan, as some have suggested. But were we to commit further American blood and treasure before such an analysis, all we risk abandoning is our reason. Thank you. Thank you for organizing this event. Thank you for inviting me to speak at it. Um, how soon the United States withdraws its forces from Afghanistan is going to depend, I think, significantly on what Republican members in, of Congress in particular are willing to do and say in the coming months. So I'm hoping that more events like this will contribute to a political climate in which more Republican members of Congress are willing to speak out in favor of an exit strategy or timetable for withdrawal from Afghanistan. So many of you saw yesterday that Senator Dianne Feinstein became the second senator to call for a timetable or an uh, exit date in the House of Representatives in June. A majority of uh, Democratic members voted uh, in favor of Representative McGovern's amendment uh, calling for the Pentagon to provide uh, Congress with an exit strategy by December. Only seven House Republicans voted for McGovern's uh, amendment. But if you look at the polling, a significant uh, minority of uh, Republicans generally in the United States are opposed to this war. According to the recent McClatchy poll, 40 percent oppose sending more troops. Uh, if 40% of the Republicans in the House, even 20%, would speak up against this war. That would be a game changer, I would submit. So I'm uh, certainly eager to do anything that contributes to that end. The United States should indeed withdraw its military forces from Afghanistan to ask the question posed by the title of the forum. The safest, most feasible, and most ethical way to bring this about, I believe, is through the establishment of a public negotiated timetable for the withdrawal of U.S. forces. Such a timetable should be a core provision of an agreement negotiated by the United States with the Afghan government and with international military partners of the United States and Afghanistan governing the presence of foreign military forces in the country. Such an agreement would bolster the legitimacy of the Afghan government as well as the legitimacy of the foreign military presence. Such an agreement would dramatically increase the patience of the Afghan public and of Western publics for the operations of foreign military forces while they remain. Recent public opinion polls clearly indicate that the American public no longer supports the war in Afghanistan. When Americans are asked about sending more troops, as General McChrystal is expected to soon propose, the response is even more lopsided opposition. 
If General McChrystal says that he needs more troops to accomplish the mission he has been assigned, and we aren't willing to send more troops, that suggests that the mission needs to change to one that can be accomplished with the number of troops that we're willing to send. If there's no worthwhile mission that can be accomplished with the troops that we're willing to send, then our troops should be withdrawn. I'm a firm believer, as I hope many of you are, in the idea that the United States should promote democracy by setting a good example. If the majority of Americans don't support the war, the U.S. prosecution of the war should not continue indefinitely. Some may say such important decisions can't be made according to the vagaries of public opinion polls. But in a democracy, the most important decisions are the ones most important to be decided democratically. Moreover, on questions of war and peace, past experience indicates that public opinion is not very volatile in its overall direction. Once the American public is turned against a war, they are usually done with it for good. Some will continue to argue that the war in Afghanistan is making Americans safer. But there is no higher judge on this question than the American people. If the American people have turned against the war, either they don't believe that it is making them safer, or they believe that whatever contribution the war is to making to American safety is too small to justify the human and financial costs. Some may argue against a precipitous or immediate withdrawal, but in the world of practical affairs, this is a straw argument. At the current juncture, the probability of an immediate U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan is indistinguishable from zero. In the debate on Iraq, when critics of the war advocated for a timetable of withdrawal, we were told that a precipitous withdrawal or immediate withdrawal would be a disaster. But now we have a timetable for the withdrawal of U.S. forces from, from Iraq as the basis of an agreement negotiated and signed by the Bush administration. Is that a precipitous withdrawal? If not, such a withdrawal from Afghanistan should be our goal. A key goal of the U.S. government is that the government of Afghanistan be perceived as legitimate. But one of the principal barriers to the perception of the Afghan government as legitimate is the indefinite military occupation of Afghanistan by the United States and its allies. From the point of view of an Afghan citizen, whether and how the war should continue, whether and how and with whom in the insurgencies there should be negotiations, are, to say the least, among the most important questions of public policy that the country faces. But key decisions about these questions are not being made in Kabul. President Karzai has asked for an agreement governing the conduct of foreign forces. The United States government ignores him. President Karzai says there should be negotiations with the top leaders of the insurgency. The U.S. government says no. How can the Afghan government be perceived as legitimate when it doesn't have effective input into key decisions affecting the country's welfare? It may seem anachronistic at this particular political moment to speak about the legitimacy of the Afghan government in the wake of the widespread allegations of fraud in the recent election. But this particular political moment will pass. The United States has an urgent interest in working out a deal. Without a government perceived as legitimate to invite their presence, U.S. troops cannot politically remain in Afghanistan. After all, Soviet troops were also in Afghanistan at the request of an Afghan government and the United States called that an occupation. The political crisis around the election will almost certainly be resolved somehow, perhaps with a national unity government, including Mr. Karzai and Mr. Abdullah, and the question of the perceived legitimacy of the Afghan government will remain a central problem of U.S. policy. Indeed, the political crisis around the election presents an opportunity. Let's make lemonade. 
we can make a bold move to enhance the legitimacy of the Afghan government. Already before the election, President Karzai announced he would invite the Taliban to Aloya Jirga or a Grand Tribal Council to try and restart stalled peace talks. The idea of a broad national reconciliation process in Afghanistan that includes tribes backing insurgents, backing the Taliban and other insurgents, has long been advocated by many, including the top UN official for Afghanistan, Qaeda. Admiral Mullen has spoken of starting over militarily in Afghanistan. If we can contemplate starting over militarily, we should be able to contemplate starting over politically. The conference in Bonn in 2001 that established the framework for the constitution and government in Afghanistan following the U.S. invasion had a fatal flaw. It excluded supporters of the Taliban. In this way, it was similar to the post-invasion political arrangements in Iraq, which supporters of the Ba'ath Party were excluded. In both cases, the decision created a class of people excluded from political participation who had the means and motive to create insurgencies, and insurgencies were the result. The proposition that there will be negotiations with the Taliban and other insurgents in Afghanistan has been endorsed by General Petraeus and Admiral Mullen. The key points in dispute are when negotiations should begin and who they should include. The current position of Admiral Mullen is that we can't go to talks now because we'd be bargaining from a position of weakness. So the question of U.S. policy now is talk now and later or only talk later. We should start the talks now. Why not? Negotiations will surface the real issues in dispute. The process of negotiation will not be quick. All the reason to begin it as soon as possible. It is commonly said by U.S. officials that Taliban leader Mullah Omar is irreconcilable. This is never explained. It begs the question, irreconcilable to what? This is certainly not the opinion of people who have been involved in the talks that have taken place so far, according to reports in the British press. The United States has one overriding legitimate national security interest in Afghanistan, that the country not be a base for organizing attacks against the United States. If there are circumstances in which Mullah Omar and his men will sign and abide by an agreement that guarantees that Afghanistan will not be a base of uh, attacks on the United States, then he is reconcilable to the interests of the vast majority of Americans. The United States indicates its willingness to negotiate a timetable for the withdrawal of foreign military forces with a national unity government in Afghanistan. That will be the power, a powerful incentive for the formation of such a government because whoever participates in such a government will be at the table when the negotiations take place. First of all, let me join my colleagues in um, applauding Cato, Chris Preble, and um, Malou, and Ted for their, for their work on putting this strategic discussion together. Too often in this town, we end up finding the problems in narrow terms, bureaucratic terms. And what Cato has done here today is to try to reach out. And so there's a lot that I've already heard on this panel that I could agree with. Uh, Malou's comment that we need to focus on a debate over whether we should, not whether we can in Afghanistan. That is too often neglected, and I applaud that kind of approach. Uh, I also agree with Celeste Ward's comment about uh, the pitfalls of trying to reduce uh, military strategy into a theology, into a checklist, um, into a clear uh, hold and build theology that clearly we're beyond that in Afghanistan and Pakistan. 
Um, and I even agree with um, much of what Bob has just said, especially on broadening the political aperture about how do we think about a political settlement in stabilizing South Asia in the future, although I uh, am opposed to uh, legislating a timetable, especially at this point, uh, because I think this is not the way to get a flexible executive policy uh, on any conflict. My basic argument in, to the, in response to the question, should the United States withdraw from Afghanistan, is no. Uh, the United States should not withdraw from Afghanistan, at least not yet. Um, we shouldn't withdraw for five basic reasons. This is an endless debate, but uh, let me go at it for ten minutes. I feel like I was put on this panel in part because um, they thought I might have a slightly different uh, view from the other panelists. Um, I, I think the argument can be made, and it's not, it's not black and white. I don't think – I'm not here to tell you that I'm here to advocate this is the only way to go. I think we can honestly disagree on this. It's that difficult a problem. It's a wicked problem. There is no easy answer. Um, uh, but first, I do believe that the alternatives to withdrawing uh, are probably worse, probably worse. Not necessarily worse. We can make them worse by staying, definitely. We can make it much worse by staying. But I think we could make it worse also by precipitously withdrawing, or scratch the word precipitous, by withdrawing in the next year. Um, as Ahmed Rashid, the Pakistani journalist, uh, I think put it very well when he said that most critics – uh, failed to offer a solution to al-Qaeda. They failed to offer a solution to the Taliban brand name. They failed to offer a solution to how to stem the further radicalization of a nuclear-armed South Asia, not just Pakistan's potential instability, but also the crisis instability that could come between nuclear-armed India and nuclear-armed Pakistan. Now, again, we can mess this up and contribute to uh, conflict by staying just as easily as leaving. So I'm not saying there's a simple answer to this. But I would rather be in the position of actively engaged and staying and try to shape this environment uh, than not, at least for the short term. Uh, our immediate side effect would be twofold, I think. First would be the return of the Taliban regime in the Afghanistan, and I think it would be even more likely that that regime would provide sanctuary to al-Qaeda than it was before when it refused to oust al-Qaeda. Again, people can disagree, um, but let's cite today's audio tape released with Osama bin Laden, where he calls for... Uh, not only the removal, again, of the apostate regime of, uh, of Karzai to replace it with radical Sharia law, something that al-Qaeda and the Taliban have failed to do now in Swat Valley in Pakistan. So it's interesting that this tape is released exactly at the moment when the Pakistani government is actually showing progress in Swat Valley, a place where they have finally committed to actually countering <coughs> the insurgency and the radicalization, it's not simply counterinsurgency, that has moved right into the heart of, of Pakistan. Um, I think that, um, you know, the, the word powerless in this tape uh, that Osama bin Laden uses regarding President Obama in the United States is an important message. And again, I, I don't disagree with Malou's comment or the comment of many other uh, terrorism specialists, of whom I'd include my wife and her new book from Princeton University Press, How Terrorism Ends. Um, that it, it's, it's, Bravo. It's, Bravo. It's a, it's a great book, uh, and, and it tells you exactly how complex it is, but the good news is that terrorist campaigns do come to an end, and they often come to an end because they collapse on their own weight. So, yes, we have to be careful not to give up new energy to a terrorist campaign, and we have to be very nuanced about this. But at the same time, I do worry about the effects of losing our credibility from appearing to have lost to a terrorist campaign and what that could do to re-energize the al-Qaeda branding. I also worry about a second major effect, which I alluded to, which is the radicalization in Pakistan. I don't want to suggest that the Pakistani state is completely brittle. It's not. It has enormous strength, and, and indeed, 
the military and the intelligence uh, backbone of that state are very strong. But at the same time, as we heard from Malou about increasing incidents in the Punjab, uh, in Lahore, and elsewhere in Pakistan, this is no longer just a problem on the tribal regions. And granted, yes, we have pushed some of this problem into Pakistan, but it's, it's not just a one-way street, uh, and it won't just stay there. So uh, the idea of how do we uh, de-radicalize uh, this Pakistan, how do we prevent uh, potential regime instability in a nuclear-armed Pakistan that is still locked into a great deal of tension with India, has, has to be of paramount importance. A second reason we shouldn't withdraw now is because a serious strategy has not been attempted. So yes, we have been at this for eight years, but we haven't been at it very seriously. And I believe that if we put our shoulder to the wheel uh, over the next couple of years, we can do better at stabilizing this region, still keeping it within bounds, and still making sure that the goals are limited uh, than we have done in the past eight years. Uh, we have overshot. We have to aim low, as Ahmed Rashid said, in what he called a bare-bones minimalist state. It's not true that Afghanistan has never been stable. It was stable most of the middle of last century under a monarchy. We are trying, trying to strive to bring about just about the same degree of centralization and is just as little as centralization as existed during that time. It is possible to aim at a stable Afghanistan state. And I think, yes, it is the graveyard of empires, as, again, Celeste's uh, colleague Seth Jones has written about brilliantly in his new book by that same title. Um, so we have to make sure that the, uh, we recognize that it's easier to get into Afghanistan than out of Afghanistan, as Seth has written. Um, but to do that, we still have to create some conditions on the ground that allow a reasonably reliable national armed force of Afghanistan and a decrease in Taliban presence and control to uh, create a situation where I believe there is a better condition for political negotiation. That's what Bob was alluding to in reference to Admiral Mullen. The resources that we've spent in the last eight years have been too scarce. They've been too scattered. These have been documented by a number of studies. Tony Cordesman has a new one on CSIS webpage that you, you can look at. The unity of, uh, of effort problem is one that General McChrystal has talked about, but others as well. We've only put the A team of this administration in place in the last couple of months. They, they need some time to have a chance to recommend a strategy, debate that strategy, and then to implement it. And the region has been too summarily ignored as well, as though we could do all of this in this region, as though we own this region. We don't. In fact, we ignored this region, as was pointed out, and we, we don't now own it. So it's time for, indeed, a new international conference. It's time for a new international bargain. <clears throat> the timing is tricky. It has to be worked in with policy, but I agree with the basic premise. This is indeed the exit strategy. Um, part of the exit strategy goes to my third point, which is that we do need to redouble uh, our efforts to build the Afghan security forces. It's not a cure-all. It's not a panacea. Uh, Lieutenant General Dubik, who trained forces in Iraq, knows this. Celeste knows this. But nonetheless, it is still also pivotal to the Afghanization of this uh, problem, uh, that we are trying to build more and more capable Afghan military and police forces, and our approach has not been systematic, as Under Secretary of Defense Michelle Flournoy has just said this past weekend. Uh, our goal of trying to increase the Afghan national security forces, both military and police, from about 225,000 to 400,000 is probably unrealistic. It probably is not sustainable. But nonetheless, increasing them, I think, is uh, possible, 
and moving from mentorship to true partnership is one of the ways that we need to go at this. I think the administration needs to really centralize this under a key official, someone like Lieutenant General Caldwell, who's been out at Leavenworth thinking through a lot of these concepts. Fourth, while we should not yet withdraw, I agree that our goal should be to move the effort to the Afghans themselves, as I just suggested, to make our goals and ends meet. It is essential that this be increasingly an Afghan campaign, not a U.S. Uh, campaign. Our efforts have to be on Afghan leadership, Afghan capacity, Afghan sustainability. Action is required at multiple levels. There's no easy answer to this. Um, we must provide not just security assistance, but yes, some modicum of uh, economic and political assistance as well within this new international context, within this minimalist in-state goal that uh, Ahmed Rashid has talked about. And all of this will require further negotiations, if you will, uh, as General Petraeus has said, between reconcilables and irreconcilables. If that's negotiating with the Taliban, that's a phrase that officials can't quite use publicly, but uh, it's certainly suggested in that phrase. And fifth and finally, we simultaneously need a long-term partnership with Pakistan and Pakistan's people, as uh, Ambassador Haqqani has said. Uh, we need to empower Pakistan to reduce the sanctuary in its tribal areas. Uh, and this Swat Valley is indeed a cause for hope. We need improved relations uh, with Pakistan um, uh, in India. Uh, this could be instrumental to lowering the temperature in the region. I don't mean that it's permanent peace between India and Pakistan, but an improved political situation could be helpful. Uh, and finally, we need further support for the Pakistani people. This can't just be a bargain between elites in Washington and Islamabad. So when we ask for money from Congress to fund real energy so that the people of Karachi, the business heart of Pakistan, don't have to have power outages every day, it's not just the Chinese who should be building uh, energy plants uh, in, in Pakistan. Although, frankly, I had this discussion with the PLA and the Chinese last week. They can be a big part of the solution. <laughs> uh, I should add as a footnote, though, the Chinese want a price. Uh, they, they say, listen, you want our relationship to go forward? You want a bridgehead even, a, a northern distribution route? You want other things from us? We're willing to negotiate, but let's talk about what we want. I can't tell you what they wanted, but the point is that <laughs> uh, it, it may be a high price to pay. Uh, in closing, let me just come back to the basic point that you are ultimately uh, the key driver of this, that even though I don't want a timetable, um, public opinion, public support is absolutely imperative for the U.S. policy in South Asia. Um, we can't accomplish anything uh, effective without uh, public support. But I, I would call, um, notwithstanding the criticism of, uh, of, of calls to be patient, I would call for a little bit of patience. That is, I would give this administration 12 months with benchmarked objectives to see whether they can start to make progress in stabilizing Afghanistan. And if they can't, then make that judgment next year in 2010 and say, listen, we waited 12 months. We know that you weren't going to build a state or you weren't going to even stabilize it in 12 months, but at least we started to see whether there was any hope that your strategy would be effective on the ground as opposed to the last administrations. And we've decided it's not. So it's time to go to plan B or C. And we ought to begin that branch planning, as they call it in the Marine Corps, internally now. We've been doing too little of that. So that all has to be going on. The international dialogue that Bob alluded to, that has to be going on now, at least behind the scenes. The discussions with Taliban-like groups has to be going on now. The engagement of other international partners has to be going on now. All of that is going on, I would suggest, and all of that is being considered by the assessment team in addition to General McChrystal's report that landed on the president's desk. And because we don't have those facts before us, I would say give the administration a chance to make this case, 
give them a little bit of time before we come down and say, you know what, it's not worth the candle. Thank you very much. I want to thank my fellow panelists for some very uh, thoughtful presentations. The United States, uh, as of next month, will have been in Afghanistan for eight years. And it's certainly not only time to ask some hard questions, it's well past time to ask those questions. Among the questions we ought to be asking, Specifically, what are America's objectives in Afghanistan? It's not enough to say we want to win. Specifically, what are our objectives? Second question, specifically, what is the strategy to achieve those objectives? Third question, what is the probability that the chosen strategy can achieve the stated objectives. And then finally, what is the probability that the objectives can be achieved with any feasible strategy? We've waited, uh, we waited seven long years for the Bush administration to address those questions, and it never really did so. We've now waited uh, nearly eight months for the Obama administration to do so, and it really has not provided adequate answers for any of those questions, much less all of them. What has happened is we seem to have drifted into an amorphous, open-ended nation-building mission, one of unlimited scope and unlimited duration. And that is a very bad business indeed. Our objective should be, as a couple of the other panelists have stressed, to prevent al-Qaeda from again using Afghanistan as a reliable sanctuary to plan and execute large-scale attacks against the United States as it did on 9-11. That's a fairly specific and a fairly narrow objective, but that's really the core American interest in Afghanistan. Now, there are a lot of missions that have been suggested and that this country seems to be pursuing that we don't need to pursue to achieve that narrow objective. For example, we don't need to try to transform Afghanistan into a stable, modern, democratic society with a strong central government in Kabul. I would argue that can't be done in any case. At least it can't be done at a reasonable cost in blood and treasure in a reasonable amount of time. Afghanistan is largely a pre-industrial, clan and tribal-based society. It's almost a misnomer to refer to it as a nation-state in, in the Western sense of the term. In addition, nation-building has a lousy track record. 
even in arenas that are far more promising than Afghanistan. Secondly, we don't need to win a war on drugs in Afghanistan to accomplish our core security objective. This is another thing we have seemingly drifted into as a mission. An August report to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee made a startling admission, namely that there is no credible evidence that al-Qaeda derives significant revenues from narcotics trafficking. That startled even me. The Taliban does. As a matter of fact, apparently just about everybody else in Afghanistan <laughs> does. Illegal drugs, whether we like it or not, are a pervasive part of Afghanistan's economy, roughly a third of the country's total GDP. And lest we think that it's just uh, the insurgents who benefit from narcotics revenues, uh, pro-government factions are in the trade up to their eyeballs. Indeed, I think it would be much easier to draw up a list of prominent Afghan political figures that are not involved in the drug trade than it is to draw up a list of the ones that are, it would be a much shorter list to uh, cite the ones who are not. <clears throat> Counter-narcotics efforts work directly contrary to the counter-terrorism objectives that we have in that country. It is no coincidence that the greatest increase in the insurgency has taken place in Helmand and Kandahar provinces. Those are the core areas of opium poppy cultivation. It is the area where the Afghan government, under a good deal of pressure from the United States, has engaged in at least half-hearted anti-narcotics measures. All that does is drive both Afghan farmers and significant local and regional political leaders into the arms of the insurgency. This is a mission that we do not have to wage to achieve our core security objectives. And finally, we do not need to crush the Taliban to achieve our legitimate objectives regarding al-Qaeda. It has been a big mistake of U.S. policymakers to completely conflate al-Qaeda and the Taliban. The former is a foreign terrorist organization with the United States in its crosshairs. The latter is admittedly an utterly repulsive political faction, but it represents a parochial insurgency and in some ways Pashtun solidarity, which is something we better pay attention to. It is not a direct security threat to the United States. And what has happened over the years is that we have drifted into a war against the Taliban, not primarily against al-Qaeda. Indeed, last Friday, General McChrystal made an admission that I found almost as startling as the admission about drug revenues in the report to the Center for Foreign Relations Committee. He said, there really is no evidence of a significant al-Qaeda presence in Afghanistan. My response to that was, well, if al-Qaeda is not in Afghanistan, 
why on earth are we in Afghanistan? We went there to defeat al-Qaeda. If this isn't the arena for al-Qaeda anymore, then our mission seems to have no rational purpose whatsoever. We have largely failed, and I don't think I'm giving away any secrets here, with our mission in Afghanistan. I believe we can develop a strategy for success. But we have to do what, uh, what Richard Haas, uh, the head of the Council on Foreign Relations, once suggested, and that is define success down. Although, admittedly, I think I would define it down a bit farther than uh, Richard would. <laughs> we have to dial back the concept of victory to something that protects America's core security interests and has a reasonable prospect of success. And that means focusing on disrupting and weakening al-Qaeda. And note the terms I use. I don't talk about a definitive victory. That's not possible over a shadowy, non-state terrorist adversary. We're not going to get some kind of surrender ceremony or a signed document. Instead, we have to treat the threat posed by al-Qaeda as a chronic security problem, but one that not only has to be managed, but, but can be managed. I tend to get very impatient with people in Washington and in the opinion-shaping sector in America generally who seem to act as though Islamic terrorists are all 15 feet tall and are about to take over the planet. They aren't and they aren't. And the sooner we realize that, the far better we will have as a strategy. We need to abandon the counter-narcotics campaign in its entirety. And we need to abandon any notion of nation-building in Afghanistan. Now, what should we be doing? Well, we should be cutting deals with any relevant player, not just acting as though the government in Kabul is the only relevant actor, not focusing on trying to create something that has never really existed in Afghanistan, a very powerful central government in control of the whole country, and a strong national army. We need to be cutting deals with every relevant player who's willing to work with us. That means regional warlords, that means tribal leaders, that means clan leaders, and yes, it includes trying to work out arrangements with ele elements of the Taliban that might be willing to work with us against al-Qaeda. I don't think it's inevitable at all that even if the Taliban were able to reestablish control over more, most of Afghanistan, that it would necessarily give shelter again to al-Qaeda. Uh, Taliban leaders have learned that there is a price to pay for that kind of decision. We don't need a large military footprint to achieve such modest, realistic goals. Small numbers of CIA and Special Forces personnel to work with cooperative players should be sufficient for that. That means that virtually all U.S. forces can and should be withdrawn and done so over the next 18 months. Escalation, which 
which is the course we're on now, is precisely the wrong strategy. No matter how long we stay, how much money we spend, and how many lives we squander, Afghanistan is never going to become a Central Asian version of Arizona. We should stop operating under the delusion that it will. Thank you. Well, thanks to all uh, my speakers. I'm not so arrogant to think that I was responsible for them keeping to their time limit, so I'll just thank them for doing that and not having to do it myself. They left lots of time for questions. We do have a few ground rules here at Cato. Uh, they're not all that unique. Uh, wait for the microphone. Identify yourself and your affiliation if you have one. Uh, and please, in the interest of uh, courtesy to your fellow attendees, keep your question brief. And also, uh, one additional caveat, because we do have five people on the stage, if you uh, intend your question for a particular person on the dais, please identify them. Thank you. Ken Dillon, Ciencia Press. For any of the panelists, um, I wonder what you think of the theory that our involvement in Afghanistan, as well as in Iraq, uh, has a deeper agenda, and that is that we want to have in place bases, troops, and equipment in the event of a scenario that would develop into a war with Iran. War with whom? Iran. Oh. Iran. Malou, Ted, anyone? It's very difficult to uh, divine uh, motives from actions. It's always a very dubious undertaking. But I do feel that something is afoot in a sense that in, in the late 1990s, PNAC, the Project for a New American Century, they advocated um, quite vociferously that the United States should have a global military presence. It should have bases all around the world, particularly in the Middle East and Central Asia. Um, their dream has come to fruition, uh, whether or not that's – um, something that they purposely wanted to do with the administration, the Bush administration, the Obama administration, I don't know. I don't have access to classified information. I wish I did. Um, but the PNAC doctrine has become, uh, has essentially uh, uh, been brought about. Um, but again, I'm not sure. Uh, I think the biggest fear I have as far as uh, the region more generally is a war with Iran, whether it's initiated by the United States or by Israel, uh, simply because I feel that Iran is the pivot point for both Iraq and Afghanistan. I feel that it's the last central door that'll essentially unleash a wave of chaos throughout the region. Then you'll have U.S. forces possibly in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and Iran. And according to Zbigniew Brzezinski, the former national security advisor, that would be the end of American global supremacy. If I could just comment on that. I, I don't know if there was a conscious strategy by the United States to uh, develop a military presence in Afghanistan as part of a larger strategy against Iran. I can say that the Iranians believe the longer the U.S. remains in Afghanistan, uh, the more likely it is that this is part of an encirclement strategy directed against Iran and not a strategy to simply go after uh, uh, Al-Qaeda and, and Sunni radical terrorism generally. The Iranians actually started out being at least reasonably receptive to the U.S. intervention in Afghanistan. Uh, the political elite uh, in that country has become more and more suspicious the longer the U.S. stays. Again, I don't know whether that is an accurate suspicion on their part or not, 
but I think it's important to note that uh, that suspicion is rising in Tehran. Do you want to add, Pat? Yes, I don't think um, too much of the theory. I mean, let me just cite one specific fact, um, and that's the reset button with Russia. Uh, This is indeed of of concern to the Russians, as you may know, sir. Um, They certainly uh, are interested in not a radical Afghanistan on on their border, but they don't also want to see permanent U.S. bases. And so part of the negotiations with Russia and part of the very successful summit meeting between Obama and Medvedev in July was very much about bringing Russia into this problem. Uh, And from the Russian perspective, this is very much posited on and predicated on no permanent basis. So I just cite that as a very specific example that the United States has been very pragmatic here. It's not being uh, this long-range strategic thinking. In fact, just the opposite. I think we've been too reductionist in our thinking. Uh, this, this panel is about trying to think a little more strategically, but not of that, not of that sort of theory. Uh, there was a hand right here. Thank you, Kato, for a very edifying panel. Coming from Pakistan, which is bearing the brunt of all this, I think I would like to just make a couple of submissions. You've done a very good work, uh, Melo Innocent, and I just wanted to talk about a little bit about Vietnam. I don't think the Vietnam analogy applies accurately, because first of all, there is no forcible draft or conscription as it was in Vietnam. And secondly, there's no state sponsor like it was in Vietnam of Russia and China sponsoring the insurgency. And that episode and that analogy doesn't hold here. But... Uh, Mr. Cronin had mentioned it, how do we stem radicalization? And you would also alluded to your wife's book, which I would like to read also. I think we just need to broaden the picture a little bit and to see what fuels radicalism, because it's no longer a domestic issue. It has a very strong transnational component. I think a beginning has to be made to relieve the occupation situations in Kashmir and in Palestinian areas, because that is really basically fueling radicalism. This may not be an issue in Washington, but this is a very significant issue in Pakistan and the adjoining areas where, by the way, it's not, a, it's not seen as a radical issue. It's can seen you, as an issue you, of justice. And, can you frame that in the form of a question? <laughs> I framed it already. Uh, uh, is there uh, a question? Is, yes. That what steps would America take to relieve the occupation situations, apart from trying to talk of withdrawal from Afghanistan, the occupation situations in Kashmir and in Palestine which is fueling transnational radicalism, which is one of the major issues now in Pakistan and Afghanistan. Anyone want to take that? I would just simply say that I, I agree that conflict resolution in general is part of a larger answer. So the fact that uh, Senator Mitchell is in the Middle East as we speak here today, working on trying to revive the Middle East peace process, is an important part of the administration's uh, effort. And the fact that I mentioned India and being part of the lowering of the temperature, that, of course, uh, automatically raises the issue of tensions in Kashmir between India and Pakistan. So I think, I think in general, although these are very electric issues, uh, they are part of, the, part of the solution as well. Um, I'll just comment. Oh, sorry. Ted? Yeah, I, I would just say you know, I understand that these situations contribute significantly to radicalization in much of the Muslim world. Unfortunately, I believe that uh, so many people overestimate the ability of the United States Mm. to help solve those problems. Uh, I think both Kashmir and the Israeli-Palestinian dispute are largely intractable problems. Certainly, the United States is not going to be able to solve them. Eventually, at some point, perhaps the parties directly involved will be able to solve them. But we cannot deliver settlements to either one of those conflicts. 
There was oh, a I just have one little comment. There's a question way in the back. So go ahead, Malou. And- um, uh, thank you very much for the kudos about my analysis. I would uh, agree with you in a sense that I think that Vietnam is a context-specific scenario. And I think that Celeste Ward brought this up with, as far as the differences and insurgencies. Um, so one model should not and cannot be applied um, to any other uh, conflict. Um, I would say that historical analogies can sometimes illuminate as much as they can obscure. So, so that's why I kind of agree with you. Uh, but once again, I think uh, even if you look at, say, Bruce Rydell, who is an advisor to the Obama administration, I believe during the transition period, even possibly right now, uh, he even said that uh, the Karzai right now looks a lot like DM did in the sense that uh, DM had a uh, poor legitimacy amongst his own people. He was considered a U.S. puppet similar to the sort of imposed system that Afghanistan has right now, and that you can throw in as many resources and as many troops and the best advisors into Afghanistan or into Vietnam, and it would still end in failure. So that's sort of the analogy I was uh, alluding to, but there are definitely significant differences. Uh, there's a question in the back. Don't be shy, you two. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> Thank you very much. I'm Tekar Hussain from Voice of America, Pashto to the Border Region Service. We broadcast nine hours of contents to the border region along Pakistan and Afghanistan. And my question is from Carpenter. When you say that the United States should withdraw within 18 months from Afghanistan, don't you think this is a mistake because it's not a nation state and it's strict terms and again the Taliban will rule and Al-Qaeda will be harboring what was the situation before 9-11? Another question from Naiman, uh, what do you see the role of uh, the neighboring countries in Afghanistan which are with the international uh, c- community wants to achieve? Ted first, and then Robert. You understood that question? Yeah, the the, uh, the first question on that, I, I do not think that it's inevitable that, uh, A, the Taliban would retake even a majority of Afghanistan, much less all of it. And secondly, even if there was uh, a Taliban regime that took power in Kabul again, that it would inevitably make the same blunder and give safe haven to al-Qaeda. I think those are popular assumptions in uh, American policymaking circles, but there is rather scant evidence for that. The international community, um, again, I've I've written on what the U.S. can expect from its NATO allies in Afghanistan, which is to say next to nothing, which is pretty much what we've received to this point. The rest of the international community has done, if anything, even a bit less. Uh, This is overwhelmingly a U.S.-led mission, and it's going to stay that way for the foreseeable future. Robert, the question was about neighboring countries. I think the neighboring countries are tremendously important. And uh, so, for example, Iran clearly has uh, significant influence, an ability to be more helpful. It's one of the reasons that the Obama administration uh, wants to talk to Iran. It's one of the reasons why I think it's a wonderful thing that the administration is talking to Iran. Clearly, Pakistan has a tremendous influence for uh, good and bad. One of the reasons, and clearly the Obama administration understands this, clearly the reasons that I agreed with the, uh, what I understood to be the thrust of the question about Kashmir and some of the comments about, about that. Obviously, it would be helpful if uh, the United States can work to lower uh, tensions between India and Pakistan, which are playing out there to some extent a uh, proxy conflict um, inside Pakistan. Part of, as I alluded to in my remarks, part of achieving a negotiated settlement in Afghanistan that includes all the factions means that you have support of all the patrons, 
when there was a national accord in Lebanon, it was signed off by all the factions, and it was signed off by all the patrons. It included Hezbollah and, and the, uh, the Hariri coalition. It included Iran. It included Syria. It included the Gulf states. Saudi Arabia also has influence. So I think it's tremendously important, and the United States should be – I think the Obama administration understands this. My main criticism would be uh, move more uh, assertively and aggressively uh, on all fronts to pursue this. Celeste. Just a quick comment. If I could just second the notion that um, a regional solution is part of the end game here. Um, you know, the United States went into Afghanistan for understandable reasons of moral outrage and justifiable reasons, but that doesn't mean that we own Afghanistan in perpetuity as a problem. And I think we need to be thinking about the interests of the other countries and their interests in stability in Afghanistan and Pakistan as well. The Chinese don't want to see a mess on their border. Uh, the Russians don't want to see it. I mean, there's there's lots of reasons why neighboring countries want to see stability there as well. And for us to shoulder it. Uh, permanently is just unwise. Um, there's a question down here. Where's my mic? It's a question here, and I'll get the people in the back, too. Right there. Okay, and then you. Hi. Uh, Bernard Fennell, American Security Project. I was hoping to uh, get a response from the innocent warden and carpenter side of the uh, table. Um, the one thing that keeps me up at night about this side of the argument, which I'm also supportive of, is the, the human rights issue and the moral issue. And Taliban being such an oppressive regime, particularly towards women, I wonder how you weigh that as part of the calculus. Does it factor in at all? Do we just not care about it? I mean, how does that work out? And it's a very uh, troubling question. It's something that I am very sympathetic to. One thing I don't like about Washington is how people openly and readily dismiss other viewpoints. I'm very sympathetic to that notion, the moral arguments. Uh, this is kind of the distinction, once again, between the can and the should, but also the pragmatic and the moral. Uh, there are many moral arguments for remaining in Afghanistan. I've worn a burqa before. It's hot. It's uncomfortable. Uh, I don't like it. Um, and I think that uh, overall, however, we must understand that strategy abroad and at home requires really – difficult choices. And if we want to remain in Afghanistan, okay, that's fine. But where does it end? Where do we not go? Um, if we want to go everywhere, we'd have to institute the draft. <laughs> from 18 to, to beyond, every male and female would have to fight from Somalia to North Korea to Haiti uh, to Sudan. Where does it end? Um, I think that when it comes down to it, it has to be based on strategic interests, unfortunately. That's, it's cold. It's calculating. It's, it's unfortunate. It's immoral sometimes. But that's really where it has to be drawn the line. And there's also the argument that I think Celeste kind of alluded to. There are portions of the United States where, you know, there is a lack of legitimacy. I mean, we're talking about this whole legitimacy argument with the Afghan government. There are Americans who don't believe Obama is their president. What are we talking about legitimacy? We can't even increase the legitimacy of our own government. Um, so there are really problems with uh, trying to change and tweak foreign cultures and foreign peoples. Uh, granted, I find the Taliban's regime abhorrent, but at the same time, how are we going to change minds at the barrel of a gun? I don't think sending 10,000 more troops is really going to change the status of women in Afghanistan. Celeste. Um, I would I would second Malou's argument that that of course it's complicated and that the, but I think um, human rights are one of our interests of course they are and we don't need to abandon them but neither do I think that a full scale nation building effort is the only solution to advancing those interests so um, it's not clear to me that that we would have to completely give up on those notions and give up on those priorities just because we weren't occupying the country in perpetuity that we have other other ways of addressing those and I'm sure we would. 
And usually also, sorry to, uh, also another thing is that change in a society usually grows best from the bottom up organically rather than imposed from the top down. I think human beings are naturally reactionary creatures and they become defensive. Uh, I think over the past eight years under Bush, we noticed even though many people don't like al-Qaeda and don't like terrorists, they simply didn't like the United States telling them what to do. So there's sort of this reactionary force to being told what to do. People don't like being told what to do. I think that's what we're noticing now. Ted, do you want to add anything to that? Not really. I think uh, there was a question down here. Hi, David Johnson, Drill Solutions. Um, my question is about al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden and his general message uh, throughout this entire effort against al-Qaeda. Um, it seems as though this panel is taking pretty much what their message is word for word, as opposed to the possibility that it's not our presence that's the problem. It's our making deals with warlords, human rights abusers, and drug dealers that is the problem. So I'd like to hear a little bit from the, the panel on that. Taking uh, OBL2 literally? Anyone want to take that one? I think sometimes, uh, at least the GOP, the GOP used to be against nation building. I think they've just kind of been invaded by neocons, so the GOP has sort of been been shifting around a little bit. But um, I think the notion that um, whether or not we take Osama bin Laden's uh, stated objectives too literally, I almost feel that he's playing this sort of reverse psychology with us. He says, we want the United States out of the region, and so the Republicans say, well, that means we should stay, but in fact, to staying actually prolongs the problem. Uh, whether or not he is playing this sort of double game with us, it's very difficult to say. Uh, but I would say this, I mean, the sanctuary argument, I, I remember it was mentioned earlier by the VOA gentleman, um, let's just assume, okay, fine, if the Taliban does take over and they allow al-Qaeda to take root in Afghanistan, let's just assume that's the case. That would almost be ideal. You would want al-Qaeda to be in an isolated, landlocked nation that you can easily strike out with cruise missiles and predators. That would be the most ideal scenario. You would want to fish them out of Pakistan. The, uh, do you want to add that? The U.S. presence, I, I think, is increasingly clear, is very much an irritant. And al-Qaeda and... Uh, for that matter, the Taliban have exploited that very, very effectively. Um, with regard to the counter-narcotics mission, I, I can simply point out that according to the UN's own statistics, uh, about 10% of Afghanistan's uh, population is directly involved in the narcotics trade, and that's measured on a, a nuclear family basis. Again, since this is very much a clan and tribal-based society, a uh, better estimate is about uh, 30 to 35 percent of the population is involved directly or indirectly in the narcotics trade. And when you have Afghan government officials, much less if you have U.S. or NATO soldiers, coming in and uh, eradicating opium poppy fields, uh, don't be surprised if you get major portions of the population that get very, very upset. At the, at the U.S. occupation. Uh, this is striking directly at their livelihood. This is a very poor country for significant portions of the population. The narcotics trade, whether we like it or not, is very much the difference between reasonable prosperity, at least by Afghan standards, and destitution. Uh, and they don't look kindly on efforts uh, to threaten their livelihood, the livelihood of their families. So I think the U.S. occupation at multiple levels is an irritant and ends up strengthening uh, both al-Qaeda and the Taliban. Uh, there was another hand. Yes, sir, right there. And then I'll get uh, in the back, two more, quickly. 
Hi, uh, Bob Kozak, Atlantic Biomass Conversions. Uh, this is mostly to Malou and Celeste. I was very struck by reading um, Malou's analysis. I hadn't realized how poor the country was, $500 million a year, rough G- GDP, and the amount of money that it was going to cost to do this. Uh, my question is, how is that, if we were to continue over there, who, how is that going to be paid for? Who's going to pay for it? And what sort of long-term effects would that have on Afghanistan and the United States? I don't know how much it's going to cost. <laughs> um, seems like a lot. Um, you know, it's we, we, we know that it's an extremely poor country and that they can't really afford to maintain the security forces that we're building with them now. For them now, this is a, this is a real dilemma for us. And if part of our strategy is further building the Afghan security forces, well, then we're obligated, presumably, to maintain them um, in perpetuity, perhaps to the tune of billions of dollars every year. Um, this is a this is not this is not about operations either and, and the other costs that may that they it may entail. I don't have a cost estimate for you for for what's going on, but it's clearly extremely expensive. I mean, to the tune of tens of billions a month. Yeah, we've already uh, spent about two hundred and twenty billion thus far, and next year uh, we're slated to spend another sixty five billion in Afghanistan alone, not including Iraq. Iraq is, I believe, sixty billion. Um, and, but it would and not counting Pakistan, and not counting Pakistan, um, and all the other countries. Uh, also, I think um, it would come out of our pockets mostly. I think uh, NATO. Um, has largely said uh, they want to scale down their presence. Uh, there are some countries who are offering several hundred troops, but uh, if you look at Canada, if you look at some other countries, they're looking toward withdrawing uh, within the next several years. So it appears that the United States, at least, and the U.S. taxpayers would be paying most of that um, th- that financial burden. Um, as, and also I want to get back to, to uh, Mr. Fennell's point um, regarding human rights as well. Just This kind of just popped into my head. I think also the United States... We unfortunately put ourselves into the position of appearing blatantly hypocritical uh, when we try and push human rights in one country, not others. Uh, Why don't we push that in Saudi Arabia, a very close ally of ours, where women can't vote, can't drive, it goes on and on. Um, So... Uh, I have time for two very quick questions in the back. These people have been very patient, so I'm going to bundle them together. So quickly, please, these two questions. My name is Stephen Shore. I'm with the PBJC. There's been little mention of the American political context Despite what I found the overwhelming cogency of at least a medium-term withdrawal, uh, I believe the last um, democratic administration to end a war was with the end of World War II. And could it not justify the apparent timidity of President Obama, knowing that the Republicans have not been shy in playing the Dolchstas card after conflicts end, especially if there's any significant number of Afghan refugees coming to the United States? Okay, thank you. And want this question as well, and then uh, we'll give each of the panelists a crack at it. Thank you, Ken Watson. No particular affiliate I speak for. Hard to bundle these two together because I felt I felt that the discussion was very uh, ahistorical, um, given that the British uh, spent almost a hundred years trying to control the problem of um, uh, preventing Afghanistan being a staging area for threats to India, uh, and did it basically through um, cutting deals, as somebody said, and short-term um, punitive action. Uh, tried garrisoning twice, completely unsuccessfully. Um, to hear a discussion of strategy <laughs> in Afghanistan without a single mention of that experience struck me as strange. Uh, what do you think of the strategy? It does require 
some kind of base and some kind of long-term, low-cost capability on the punitive side as well as the cutting deal side. Okay. Um, either any one of the panelists take either one of those questions. Uh, let's just go ahead. Right let's go down the list. Yeah. Uh, Ted first. Let me take the political context. It is never a good sign when the public has already turned against a war in the initial months of a new administration. Um, Obama is now in the very awkward position of largely depending on Republican support for his Afghan policy. Uh, that's, I think, going to be politically very unstable going forward. Uh, the second question, uh, do we have the, do we need the ability to uh, apply punitive measures if deal cutting and other arrangements fail? The answer is uh, quite possibly we will have to do that. But again, uh, technology has changed an awful lot since the British were involved in trying to prevent Afghanistan from being used as a base for hostile operations against India. The United States has an ability to strike targets in Afghanistan or anywhere else from a considerable distance. I do not believe that we need bases in the region. Uh, if we uh, withdraw our, the bulk of our forces from Afghanistan, I don't think there's a scenario in which we would reintroduce significant numbers of forces, and therefore bases in that immediate area are really not essential for that strategy. Patrick? Um, oh. We'll go down this yes. way, though. Yeah. Let me just take up uh, Ken Watson's point. I mean, I agree. History is absolutely critical here. Ten-minute presentations doesn't do justice to uh, allow us to introduce a lot of history, so I apologize. I think Seth Jones did a pretty good job in his book of, of recounting British history, Russian history uh, in, in Afghanistan. Um, but there are many other books. Peter Bergen has just put out a very good biography, in fact, on Foreign Policy website of some of the literature uh, on Afghanistan, Pakistan. A lot of it's focused on al-Qaeda, but, but much of it's also historical. Um, I would say that the British experience is probably more instructive than, say, our experience in Vietnam. Um, but, again, if I can just cite Seth Jones's book, and Seth has been an advisor right now, so he, he's got a, a, maybe a vested interest in and what he's doing, but the reality is that um, some of the British tactics have hit and bolt. He said, you know, we're not successful. So the idea that we can simply do a counterterrorism operation on the cheap uh, is at least open to serious question. And I have to just take one final exception with what Ted Carpenter said twice today, which is that he thinks there's no evidence that a Taliban-run Afghanistan would reinvite al-Qaeda back in. And I would just ask you this. If you've just defeated, first, the Soviet Union... And now the United States, who's going to keep you out? Who's going to stop you from doing that? There's no, le there's no political will left. Thank you. I'll take the political question, something that I've been focused on recently. I think it's tremendously important. Uh, we've seen, as I briefly alluded to, a uh, big shift on the Democratic side with the majority of House Democrats voting for the McGovern Amendment exit strategy with uh, Democratic senators speaking up, Senator Feingold, uh, Senator Feinstein. Senator Levin came out last week and said, no, we shouldn't do more troops now. Others have said that too. Um, but there is a silence on the Republican side, which is a mismatch with Republican public opinion. 
Um, there's a, you know, a party line has been uh, determined by the Republican National Committee. You saw how uh, George Will had that piece in the Washington Post, and immediately the RNC came out with a press release denouncing uh, George Will as a, as a surrender monkey defeatist. So um, I think it's tremendously important to uh, figure out what the path is for more Republican members of Congress, or what the multiple paths are for more Republican members of Congress to speak out. There clearly is a lot of uh, concern there, I think, that hasn't been uh, expressed yet. I know my own member of con Congress, uh, Tim Johnson from Illinois, traditionally moderate centrist Illinois Republican, is totally against what's going on in, in Afghanistan. Voted from the McGovern Amendment, voted against the money, um, and uh, is ready to do more. So, um, so the, I mean, it's a good task for the people in this room to figure out, you know, it's probably not just one thing. Maybe things like the McGovern Amendment, maybe that's more attractive uh, to Democrats. Maybe they need even more letters, more Republican resolutions. The George Will resolution uh, introduced in, in, the, uh, in the House of Representatives with Republican sponsors. I think that will address the dynamic. Uh, more bipartisan, transpartisan uh, events like this one to create the space for Republicans to speak out. Okay, quickly. Just very quickly, I'll just say I, I, I agree with Pat Cronin here in that um, if the if if we were to decide tomorrow that we wanted to remove U.S. forces from Afghanistan, it would be important how that was done. Um, and I think just uh, turning away and leaving really risks that giving the Taliban a, a, mor a moral whoever they are uh, anywhere our, our adversaries a moral victory. Um, and we and I don't think the administration would want that or could afford that. Obviously, to get to the political question, so I think it is important to describe an incumbent on on those of us who are critics of escalating our presence to describe how you would reduce U.S. forces over time and how you would explain to the American people that this is not merely a continuation of repri reprisal for 9-11 um, and that we've achieved that goal. So. Hello. Um, I would say um, the, our, in our, none of the speakers brought up the Soviet Union or the British. I guess that was a sin of, uh, I guess, omission rather than commission. I, uh, we also didn't bring up the Mongols, the Persians, uh, the Greeks. Uh, so, um, <laughs> yeah, but anyway, the with, with regards to the punitive strikes, I would argue that we that we would have access to the region. Right now, we use the Shamsi Air Base in Balochistan. I don't think that would uh, discontinue if we were to scale down our presence. In fact, uh, the Pakistanis have they've been very warm uh, to allowing us to have bases in the region. In fact, the U2 spy plane that was shot over the Soviet Union in the 60s that came out of Peshawar. Uh, so I, I think that we will have access to the region. I think probably if we have relations with uh, various Central Asian republics, they would allow us to, uh, again, just not in the same force that we have now. I think we can easily scale down our presence. All right. Well, I, uh, thank you very much, Malou, and thank you all for coming out today. Please, a round of applause for our panelists. Um, Please join us upstairs in the atrium if you'd allow, uh, just uh, head on up there. And if you have any questions to follow up, all of our panelists will be up in the uh, atrium afterwards for uh, lunch. Thank you.